1: Hey, you're listening to Rock and Roll, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm BJ, and we are continuing our Power Pop series. On this episode, you will hear two different interviews. First, my conversation with guitar player Marco Del Mar from The Electrics. That's E-L-E-K-T-R-I-C-S. They had two albums on Capitol in 1980 and 1981. And second, we will hear my interview with keyboardist Dave Hearn. He's the H in Hawks. They had two albums with Columbia in 1981 and 1982.
3: was was very much an anomaly. Um, we were—I was—I was living up in New York. A good, good friend of mine was uh, was going, going out with uh, uh, Andy Golden of the Shirts, and uh, they were my, my friend Doug Wall was in the—he was in the Hair with uh, Andy Golden and uh, you know, the, the Broadway revival of Hair
1: mm-hmm.
3: back in 1978. I think it was and interestingly enough one of the members of the cast was also carl warner who's our singer the mm-hmm. electric singer who by the way is recently deceased so yes your listener want to know that oh, yeah. Uh, yeah yeah it was prematurely but uh anyway so he i moved up to new york and was part of the whole cbgb's local scene and Uh, It was a big, very, very um, bohemian kind of uh, renaissance-ish type of existence up in the village in New York back in 1978. And so I moved up there, and my friend Doug and I used to play around all the clubs and, you know, the bottom line and places like that. And um, at one point, you know, we used to go to all the shows uh, for CBs and CBGBs and so on. And at one point, she was interviewing a WPIX, John Ogle, who was the uh, DJ that was interviewing her uh knew somebody in New Jersey who was trying to form a band and uh she asked if we knew a guitar player and so she gave my name and I went out there and met met the boys and listened to the music and I thought it was pretty compelling cuz they, they like they were very much songsters you know they were all they were very all beatle fans and so on and so yes we were you know, punk music, but we also liked lots of vocals and so on. If you've listened to any electrics records, it's like, lots of three-part harmonies. Based on Andy Golden's recommendation, I uh, was able to uh, access them. Uh, And it was Chris Ambrose on the bass and Bob Giro on on the keyboards and Andy Popper on the drums. So we decided, you know, it just felt right. We all kind of had a very commonality in music. The fourth the thing the electrics always did was they were very good at staying within their ability to excel. You know, they wouldn't try to do things they couldn't do. It was all about putting out the music and putting out good songs. And uh, we started playing some shows. I think it was like the first one we had was actually in Asbury Park, and I've got, I still have a picture of that. And we immediately got three encores and was like, okay, that's interesting. And so... Our manager went ahead and put our name out there, and, and next thing you know, we started seeing when uh, we were playing like Zappas in Brooklyn and Fast Lane in Asbury Park and uh, my father's place up in Long Island, and we started seeing these uh, label people show up because it was, you know, back then it was kind of the whole CBGB's punk scene, and the labels were basically coming down and just signing everybody. Within about six months of the band's formation, we were signed to Capitol for a six-album deal. Wow. So it was—it was not a matter of developing over time. <laughs> right, know, it just right. kind of—it was just kind of one of those, you know, serendipity moments of boom. Oh yeah, I like your singing. You like my guitar playing. We like—it was just kind of felt right. I wouldn't give anything credit for that other than just uh, dumb luck. Uh, and also our timing was excellent because our kind of music was exactly what was going on in the, that whole punk scene in the late seventies so yeah we got we got signed right away, and they sent us into the studio with Peter Kerr and we worked on our first record so I would not say that's a typical situation. I think it was a convergence of a lot of different factors, the right chemistry, the right timing that was really important yeah you know, the 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 guys in the band were um it's funny because most of the guys, especially like chris Ambrose were very much artists, you know, and so that was very much along the lines of renaissance i mean his forte is actually. Uh, he was a great painter. In fact, I just spoke to him last week for the first time in a while. Uh, so everything was approached very much from an artistic, heuristic kind of standpoint. If you listen to the music, it's it's very simple. But then Carl Warner was also a little bit of a mad genius as he came up with these amazing uh, lyrics and conceptual things that were just you know, like plastic sound and the Joker and things like that that were just really you know quite deep for for that and we would just kind of simplify it and make the music simple. Because he used to come to us, he didn't play any instruments. So he would come to us and he would have mimicked all the instruments he was hearing in his head um, uh, vocally. So he'd have these big acapello uh, pieces of music that he would bounce from one cassette to the other and back and forth and back and forth until he'd get a piece that made sense. Uh, it was pretty ingenious stuff. And uh, that I think, and, and Chris and I had a very much a much more simple pop rock um you know the the timing back then the the trend was towards the simplification of music because you know, they had gotten so complicated that it now everybody in the mid 70s late 70s were going back to the roots and so in that respect uh, him and i fit quite nicely there because we like simple pop music
1: so yeah you come out of kind of the punk the punk idea so was directed the, right. the record turned out a lot more polished than you expected or wanted or were you going for that kind of 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 a record?
3: Well we weren't really going for I mean the punk sounds definitely an influential. I mean mm-hmm. I remember in the mid seventies we were coming out of the whole uh, BGs, you know, Saturday night, uh Oh, was that that, 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 that
1: yeah movie, Saturday Night um, Fever. Yeah.
3: Saturday Night Fever, and then you had Journey, and all those bands that were the you know the late '60s, early '70s rock bands had gone kind of over the top with a uh, hair rock thing. Uh, it become very self indulgent, and you know we're all. Music gods and that sort of thing, you know. Which, which one of the great things about punk music is a total reversal. That I'm sorry, you're just another toolbox here, you know. Um, And that was the thing that I found very energizing is it kind of brought everybody back down to earth a little bit, you know. We're just regular people who just playing music. You know, I was a huge fan of the Sex Pistols, and if you listen to Sex Pistols music, I mean, it's actually quite polished. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, know, you don't realize, I mean that 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 Bollocks record was just very polished. Uh and even some of the early Clash, you know, I mean, yeah, there was a lot of letting things uh you know go on the edge, you know, they let a lot of the angular sounds come through, but it was very well put together. Um you know, some of the uh Uh, pretenders records and police records I mean those are very very good productions. but they were good productions because they not only had nice polish to them but they also allowed for uh, a loosening up of it was a loosening up of the expectations so all of a sudden yeah you could have reggae and you could have rock and you could have you know all of a sudden you could have all this huge different kinds of variety of music which is what makes music so exciting but it didn't let go of the good quality recording it just totally changed what you were allowed to try it had been very narrow and i dare say it's gotten quite narrow again or it's kind of come and gone really so i think that that record ended up being very polished in the sense that it was you know it was using the the tools of the time and we've got a couple songs on there like indifferent and things like that that are that are pretty heavy heavy punky type sounds i said we were all basically you know songsters and popsters you know we all liked early beatles and things like that so uh, we weren't going to just start playing you know uh god save the queen kind of music if it's not in our heart i mean you know when you get up there you have to play what's in your heart and that's certainly that was a time period where people were really really getting into we can play whatever our heart feels you know whether it's ska or whether it's you know, it was, or, or hard rock, or whether it's just, you know, regular pop music like the Pretenders. I mean, it was very interesting that way. Every club you went to, every band you saw it was very different. I mean, it was you, know, you could see the Talking Heads playing right along with Blondie. I mean, that was uh, quite a variety of uh, styles right there. Um, and, you know, so, therefore, our records were, yeah, they were kind of poppy, and they were fairly polished, because really that's the kind of sound we liked. And especially Carl's music was very, very complex as far as the different uh, chordal structures and patterns and so on. So if you hadn't mucked that up too much with too many angular sounds, I think it would have really uh, would have hurt that. So in his songs in particular, they were very um, uh, crafted kind of songs. Chris's songs, like Anyway, and uh, We Are Americans, which I think is one of the best songs we ever did, were just very basic, free guitar, you know, guitar bass, drum, vocal.
2: American
3: speaking, no, we were not, we did not feel that we were not true to our punk roots, because, well, we were not the Sex Pistols. We were true to our roots.
1: Yeah, I just know, like, uh, did you know the band Quincy? Because I know they were playing CBGBs and stuff around that time.
3: Not really. No, I don't.
1: Oh, yeah, they were were from uh, were they from Philly, I think? But I know that, like, they weren't happy with how their record turned out, even though I think it's great. But, you know, at the time, Uh they didn't like how Polished and, and overproduced, it was. Not that I'm saying the electrics were were overproduced or anything. I think the records are great, but I was just, I've heard that before, so that's why I was asking. Yeah,
3: I mean, we didn't have any confusion as to the kind of sound we wanted. I mean, it ended up sounding the way we wanted. I mean, yeah. you know, we, we, did, we did exactly the record we wanted. Capital told so that's exactly the record we were hoping you'd give us, and so there was no. No problem there. You know, it's funny because I thought the first record did fairly well. I don't know why it was sold a hundred thousand or something like that, which doesn't seem like a lot, but it's a lot. Um, And yet they felt they really let us down, which was interesting. Right. (laughs) Like they felt we gave them what they wanted, but you know the thing about punk music right then it wasn't it was huge in New York and New Jersey and Philadelphia and L.A. You know, but it was not that big throughout the country. So there was a limited audience. It really was. I mean, people you know in, in the uh, outside of the main city centers were still all down with Zeppelin and Deep Purple and all that stuff. It, it, I don't think punk ever, even new wave, really ever really really became huge mainstream until like uh, uh Duran Duran and people like that in the early eighties. They would sign people like us and they'd throw, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars at you. Yeah. It was pretty crazy. And uh you know, and then uh if you if you sell, you sell, you don't then that's fine, they let you go. And they kept you as long as you were selling enough to cover your cost and some. You know, we were in that category. We covered our cost and and quite a bit.
1: Yeah, I think I think seventy seven was the biggest year that the record industry had. And uh mm-hmm. they yeah, they just had so much money uh flowing right. in that you know yeah. yeah, they it was literally just throw everything at the wall and see what sticks, basically.
3: Well well that's exactly it.
1: Have you heard the term power pop applied to the electrics before? And and what do you think of of the term power pop and of that as a genre?
3: We were absolutely we were the poster child for power pop. Right. They they used to call us that from the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of funny. Uh, because we had some songs that were really, really pop. Uh, and then we had songs that were just really, you know, at 78 speed. And that was termed power pop. That was more of an American thing, I think, than the British thing. Yeah. Uh, the, the British were, I don't know how to describe it, but power pop was definitely more of a... At least I, the ones I can think off the top of my head tended to be American bands.
1: It was this it was I mean in the late 70s early 80s if you look at how many bands there were that were all playing a similar style mm-hmm. but then there's a lot yep. of variety. I mean a lot of the bands are throwbacks to the 60s British Invasion and yep. stuff. But there's not yep. a ton of that in the Electrics. The Electrics have more of a it's it's easier to call the Electrics new wave maybe even yes. though Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah, we're definitely more of a new wave especially the second record. Yeah. Um, you know, New Wave was definitely you know, we were in that we were in that Duran Duran area, except they were they were I think they were masters at it. But yeah, much more of a new wave trying to get that the plastic sound kind of sound, which is at the end of the first record, which is kinda of where we were moving into. More you know, we everybody had everybody went out and bought a profit keyboard.
2: <laughs> <Right>.
3: <laughs> and that really changed our sound for the second record. I'm not so sure it was a good thing, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think it was all uncharted territory at the time, and so because, you know, the the music had taken such a quantum leap change in the se- early mid-70s, everybody was trying to, really trying to reinvent it. Right. And then right after that is when the uh, recession hit, and, and et cetera, et cetera, and the, and the labels don't have, didn't have as much money anymore.
2: Right.
3: <laughs> you know there was a whole bunch of bands that came out i'm trying to think of the names um fly to seagulls for example yeah. you know you have that hev- heavy drums and and bass and some some crunchy guitars and you got these overlaying um spacey keyboards and harmonies and so on
1: well you know you guys had a song like uh like time after time for example which is much right. more of like a complex arrangement and so a song like that is hard to just stick in any one genre, you know what right. I mean,
3: yeah, I think that might have been a result of an awfully long night out and uh let's have a little reggae, a little rock, a little, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think <laughs> I think I wrote that one at four o'clock in the morning or something. genres. And like I said, we, we, everybody was just, there was not too many rules, you know, so you could kind of borrow from left and right. So to me, power pop was more matter. Yes. Yeah, so time, time for time is a perfect example of that because it's a very flowy kind of verse verses, and then it goes to the chorus and it's just straight up rock. So yeah, that to me has always been what I considered power pop. And I think that's, that's kind of a combination. I mean, you know, I can, the, the Pretenders are a perfect example of that or the Police. And I don't think people ever get tired of that.
1: Right, yeah. Uh, one one song, like when I've made Power Pop mixtapes and stuff like that in the past, mm-hmm. uh, one of the electric songs I usually use is I Just Keep Crying from the second album. kind of got it's kind of a classic power pop song except the production is a little bit weird on it it's a little bit I don't know what it is it's a it's very produced you know what I'm talking about
3: oh yeah yeah well the second record was was by Tony Bon Jovi and Lance Quinn Mm -hmm. and that was and he had um, Neil Dorfman who's a really really good producer uh, was the engineer he had just finished recording uh, Bruce Springsteen's The River, and his next record he produced was Stings. So he was very much right down the, uh, right down the alley of uh, uh, heavy production, and yeah, I think that record was much more produced. I mean, I tend, to, I tend to prefer current events Yeah, because it's just a little more pure. But yeah, I Just Keep Crying was fun. That was kind of a fun tune. I think it was, is that the one where he's talking halfway through it? Oh no! I'm thinking of 1910 Overture.
1: Everyone. Right, that's a yeah. cool song too.
3: That's that was a lot of fun. That one he couldn't come up with any lyrics, so I handed him a copy of the New York Post and I said, "Here, just read this." <laughs> <laughs> and if you listen to him, you, he's reading out of a newspaper. And it, it, you know, for we first we did it as a joke, and then all of a sudden, and we, we listened to it, and we we're like, "Hey, that sounds pretty cool." <laughs>
2: thinking he was the same part. A total eclipse, a witch's kiss, a raging fire in the land, red riding
3: State of shock is that we really were in a state of shock. We had just started recording the record when John Lennon was killed. Oh, right. And that was just an absolute. I mean, I remember going around the Dakota with this All these, you know, everybody was everybody was just kind of aimlessly walking around the uh, the streets in the Dakota. They closed it off, and all these guys from the Capitol Record executives were all walking around with tears in their eyes. It was just kind of, you know, everybody was just in shock. And we finished the record under those auspices, and that's why we call the record State of Shock. Right. Uh, And and so there was a real, uh, it was very hard to have a strong vision and maintain a really uh, strong direction like we did on the first record.
1: And how did Uh, you end up with those producers for the second record?
3: Well, we, we wanted to expand a little bit beyond the uh, standard record. Well, we liked what Peter Carr did on the first record. Um, yeah. But we wanted, we wanted, you know, I really liked his style. And that's kind of more of the style of producer that I've become. Um, but he, for the second record, we really want to just kind of expand and have you know, open up the palette, so to speak, and be able to try anything. And there's some there's some pretty wild sounds in that record. Uh, but Lance Quinn was actually also a really good musician, and they were a partnership, those two, because Tony couldn't tell you a C from a G. Um, you know, he could put together and build one of the most amazing studios I've ever been in, Power Station, um, and he could he had a masterful ability of mic micing things. Uh, his mic mic techniques were fantastic. Um, but uh, Lance was more of a musician. He was a guitar player, and he could sit there and you know uh, pull out his pull up his sleeves and and get into the nitty gritty of why that chord doesn't work with this note, that sort of
1: thing. They've become more identified with hard rock, you know, mm-hmm. since then. And it's like you hear some of that on the on State of Shock in some of the songs. Yeah, and it's kind of a weird so, shift. It's kind of a weird shift, you know.
3: Especially in the drum elements, they tend to be a little more uh, sharper. But they had some they had some amazingly fun. You know, they're very creative. Like the very first song on the record, uh, "When the Night Comes Down," which is uh, a song by Chris. It sounds like uh, glass breaking for the snare drum sound. It literally is. We uh, were you know we're thinking about that, and then I remember Tony turn around to uh, Tony turn around to John bon jovi yeah i apparently. was gonna ask
1: i was gonna my next question was gonna be if john was around
3: <laughs> yes john was the guy that used to go out and get us heinekens and right. you know uh <laughs> he, was, he was only like 17 or 18 you know it was yeah. just a, it was, he was just an intern nice nice guy you know uh long long hair and i remember that um and they sent john out to macy's right around the corner because we were on 50th and in ninth avenue i think it was and um bought a whole bunch of crystal glasses and a, so and a silver tray had to be crystal had to be a silver tray okay and the power station had a big um its own parking lot that was adjacent to it so it was a four it was a four-story building and each story had a had a the, the parking lot next to it and a big door that opened up into the parking lot so we were in we were in studio a and that had uh, a big um uh a garage kind of door that opened up into the parking lot and uh, I'm not sure who it was it might very well have been John for all I remember uh, went in there and had all the crystal glasses champagne glasses on a tray stood on top of a ladder and they. And Neil Dorseman said okay ready one two three and then dropped it and crashed and broke all the glasses <laughs> they took that sampled it looped it and it became part of the drum sound wow and if you listen to the first song on State of Shock you can't now you know the story you can't miss it yeah (laughs) it's like when a night comes down that's what it is now when the
2: night comes down that's when my love Power
3: One of my favorite uh, uh, episodes of that record.
2: <laughs> yeah.
3: Um. It also shows you a little bit, like, oh my God, we went out and bought $500 worth of crystal glasses and broke it just for a sound. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and that came out of your royalties, right?
3: <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure it was our budget. Yep, yeah. Yep. Every bit of it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Get a silver tray. These guys are paying for it. <laughs>
3: I know. It was just like, well, can it be a plastic tray? Nah, different sound. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um but you know, despite despite all that, the record when we first had finished it was way too avant garde. Capitol didn't want to release it. Really? Yeah. So they sent Bobby Columbi. You know Bobby Columbi? He was the head of A and R for the West Coast and he used to be the drummer for Blood, Sweat and Tears. Okay. Later later one was one of the hosts for Entertainment Tonight on T V. Uh super nice guy, great talented musician, and they sent him to New York for a couple of weeks, and him and I would drive out of my little Volkswagen to our practice place in New Jersey, and he would sit down and go through, and they were trying to get us to do, like, three or four. we went back in the studio with three or four new songs uh, that they felt would be a little more commercial. Primarily, they wanted us to do something we had never done before, which was a cover, and that's of Go Now. Right moody Blues song, and I remember we were pissed. It was like, really, you want us to do this? We gotta go now, da, da, da. you know? It's like, no, that's just not us. So we said, okay. And I looked over and I said, okay, Andy, remember that uh beat that you did on Indifferent on the first record? Do it now. <laughs> <laughs> and then we did Go Now at seventy-eight speed, and that's yeah. You know, I said, well, are you guys okay with that? They're like, oh, okay, I guess so. The same song and blah blah blah. Uh, so if we're gonna do a cover, it's gonna have to be you know a redo. It can't be a, just the same thing.
1: Yeah, that's actually um, a great uh, cover. <laughs> I like the I like the Moody Blues song, but what you guys did yeah, is yeah. it it works great. You know, because it's got the same great melody, but just turn it into you know a new wave song. It totally works. Actually,
3: right, made it a power pop song. Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> Good night.
3: To try to prove yourself. I mean, we kind of missed that a little bit because the person that actually signed us was Rupert Perry. And Rupert Perry was the president of AR for Capital and EMI. So we were the boss's band. So we didn't have to worry too much about that trying to make a name for yourself and impress the boss syndrome, which a lot of bands suffer from. In fact, some of the bands I've recorded as a producer that got signed, one to Epic Records, another one to BMG, they went through that terribly because they were given like uh, relatively young A&R people, some of which had no experience, and they were trying to show what their metal to their boss, and so they would, hey, let's try this, let's try that, so they could feel that they had an influence on the record and be able to say they partook in its success. So yeah, that political game is a is a nasty one. Uh, i've seen it as a producer producing bands have seen it happen to them more than i did with the electrics because we were the boss's band
1: so uh, how did it end for the electrics then
3: uh the band broke up um pretty much and i mean you know we were at it for two three years uh was a lot of energy we i think that some of us were disappointed with i was disappointed with the road <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: it was
3: not nearly as much fun as i thought it was going to be um who did you go and- out on tour with Uh, We toured with Robert Palmer a lot, uh, Alice Cooper, The Motels, Psychedelic Furs, uh, Jim Carroll we toured with, oh, Iggy Pop we toured with. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and it was fun in its way, but it's pretty soul. um, The other thing, too, is, I mean, if you're living, if if you're somebody who grows up in Morgantown, West Virginia, and you go on tour, wow, it's fun. But when when your home base is New York City in Manhattan, it has the opposite effect because you're not going up somewhere that's more exciting. You're usually going down to somewhere that's a lot less exciting. You know, playing in a mall, <laughs> things like that. Right. Uh, so you know, we used to love to play around New York City because we you know, we'd go play in New York, go to a great party afterwards. You know, uh, take, take take a taxi home. <laughs> you know, it was it was fun, especially during the uh, the New Wave days. Um, so to go out and play out was was just uh, it was more of a job. Uh, it wasn 't seeking adventure, you know we were lived in adventure, <laughs> so right. going out was much more state uh, it was boring. I mean, you just go from one you know club to another or 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 a venue and you can 't really run around and do much because the tour manager doesn 't want to lose you. they want to know where you are at all times and it' you know, it's pretty and you don 't have much money because you 're you know you 're on the road you 're living off a of per diem, so you 're not really have like money to go party or anything, not to mention they wouldn 't let you if you did. <laughs> right. uh, yeah, I was really going. Really, is that what this is about? You know. <laughs> uh, but anyway, that's not why the electrics broke up. We just, you know, we did a couple records. I think, I, I think, I think the whole shocking John Lennon being killed thing really took a lot of wind out of our sails. Yeah. Uh, because you know, certainly for myself and Carl, th- thus and and I would say Andy Popper, the drummer. Uh, you know, the Beatles were such an enormous part of our of our reason we do we did this. I remember they had an interview with me on Seventeen magazine <laughs> and the question was, you know, who your greatest influences were, and I still have it somewhere. It's like, you know, I said my greatest influence is John Lennon. And this is pre John Lennon being killed. This is after we put out our first record. Um, and so it took us a while to kind of catch our breath after that. It's like, "Oh my God, this is you know reality, it's not you know magic it's not the magic bus, you know it's not the magical mystery tour. you know this is reality. People live and die uh, and that was uh you know that that's it it kind of takes a little bit of the uh, the fun out of it, and you know we were only in our early twenties, so it's, you know we're pretty impressionable. <laughs> yeah but the other thing too is I mean they just you know we 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 came to the tables we were we were picked up for the third record, and we were ready to go and putting all our songs together and I think what happened as a result of that of that kind of shock is that Carl and Chris really stopped uh writing as many as many songs, especially Carl really really went into a show. And uh, you know we kept, we got together. to, Okay, let's put our songs together. What's going to be the third record? And you know, I I came with my fifteen, and everybody's supposed to come with their fifteen. We're supposed to have like thirty to forty songs, for which we whittle down to ten. And uh, then I realized that Carl had two, Chris had three. I was like, oh wait a minute, <laughs> uh, I don't. I I know I've got a good five or six that I'm really proud of, but I don't have a full records for you know worth. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we got to just kind of you know put. Get back to woodshedding and write some more songs. And we talked to Capitol, and they were like, "Oh, sure, it takes six months. That's fine. We take what you need, you know." So, and then within the six months, um, I think we we end up getting a new bass player and our keyboard player. We yeah, Drew was fired because he was uh, too many drugs. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, your chemistry changes. And all of a sudden, you know, the pal, the brotherhood changes. And all of a sudden, the drummer quits. And then you're like, "What do we have here?" Um, the other thing too is I right at that time I had met Steve Priest, who was a bass player for Sweet mm-hmm. and we'd become really good buddies, and I really was starting to work with him, and we really had a great uh, a great um chemistry. So I didn't push too hard to stick look, if you guys wanna break up then fine. You know, it's like I didn't I could not see the forest for the trees. <laughs> you know.
1: Yeah.
3: In retrospect that was probably not the smartest thing. Although Steve and I continued working together for five years and we did some great stuff together, but uh you know, when you have a rector contract you shouldn't just uh assume the next one's right around the corner. Right. Uh so basically the band broke up. I mean it was just uh Carl had gone off a little bit off the deep end a little bit and then uh, everybody was starting to get restless cuz you know touring was uh, more of a drudgery than we thought and uh, and uh yeah the drummer quit the keyboard player was fired so we just broke up capital was uh not thrilled they were really looking for cuz we always made them money that's the thing but you know creative ensembles they either are creative or they're not and once the creativity starts to go away and the chemistry shifts you're almost better off leaving it alone you know you don't want to be a Uh, trying to, you know, I think we did a couple great records we were really proud of and we had a lot of fun and this and that and when it stopped being fun, we just stopped.
1: Right when M T V was about to happen. <laughs> right.
3: Yeah, well it's funny because we actually were really close with Martha Quinn and this other one. We, we I remember Chris and I going shopping with Martha Quinn and uh we went shopping down at Capizio's and stuff together one afternoon. <laughs> with, you know. And they definitely wanted to, you know, do a lot of features with us because uh, we were a very visual band. Mm-hmm. Um but now, unfortunately, we just we never quite got there because by the time that would have happened, uh, yeah, like I said, we broke up,
1: yeah. And your kind of music was—that's what was popular at the beginning. Yes, it was.
3: <laughs> which, which is why I think uh, Capital was not very happy. <laughs> right,
1: right. <laughs>
3: okay, now's your time. Oh yeah, well, the band's dead now. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But you know, it's—it's it's, it's a dead. You can't beat a dead horse. You know, when it comes to creativity, and as a producer, I see this all the time with artists and musicians. You know, and there's a moment—that brief, shining moment—where you just capture it on tape and you enjoy it. For what it is, you know, you just can't recreate it every time.
1: Yeah, it sounds like you guys are very artistic and creative, and you can't just force that. If it's if the inspiration isn't there, then it's not going to work if you try to force it. So,
3: well, exactly. We were never a contrived band. We were we actually came in that period of time where people were fed up with a whole contrived experience um you know the mid 70s rock scene and uh it was you know the bands that came out of that scene were the, the anti-contrivance um and so yeah you want to be true to yourself because if not then you're not true to your music and then what what are you doing yeah what's the point yeah we're none of us were ever in this for the money eh? <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs>
1: well it sounds like you've been able to make a career out of music though right
3: yeah, no, I love it. I have yeah. a great time with it. And great musicians I uh, will work with. I'm in an area we moved down to D C precisely because it was quite the uh, original scene down here. Um New York had kind of had gone of the way of uh commercial over commercial music Oh, like the, the Like was Discord
1: like-, like Discord records and stuff, you mean?
3: Yeah, it's funny because my wife knows Ian Mackay really well. She grew up with him. Right. Um and in fact his house is 3 blocks from me. Really? <laughs> Small world. Wow. Yeah. Uh and I I do some recording over at Inner Ear, which is where which is their studio sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um but just a great variety of uh and not just, you know, discords kind of like the, um, the the garage, you know, punk scene. Yeah. Uh which is limited which has limited appeal for me because it's not as, you know, I'm more of a uh, pop music kind of guy mm-hmm. um and so it's neither really rock and it's neither really pop it's kind of a whole different thing which i think is very cool and i you know the the best records out of discord to me are for Gazi. yeah
2: um
3: and if you listen to them they're not at all you know uh it's funny they're not a lot they're not too much like the other discord bands <laughs> so it's it's no. kind of interesting uh but anyway we, we moved down here in 88 89 because this Scene in New York it kind of petered out, and there was this great scene down here. So, uh, yeah, I had a good time with it. Cool. The key thing is to do what you love, and, uh, you know, the road wasn't what I loved. I love traveling, but not with a band.
1: Right. So, anyway. <laughs>
2: you
1: Where do you think the Hawks fit in to the, to the power pop genre of that era?
4: You know, at the time, I thought we fit absolutely perfectly. And as I look back on it, uh, I think we, we we were caught in a, uh, uh, a transitional period. We were right at the end of the little power pop explosion that got band signed. So when I look back on it, I don't think we uh, we fit as perfectly as I thought we did at the time. We, we were really a songwriter band. We were all crazy about the Beatles. We got into pop music because of the Beatles. But because we were so Midwestern, <laughs> as I look back on it, we were influenced also at the same time by a lot of other things that were happening in the Midwest at the time. And that was bands like, well, you know, our favorite band at the time, the reason that we picked Tom Worman or that when Tom Worman was
2: was offered
4: to us uh, as a producer, we jumped on him because he did cheap tricks. A cheap trick to us was sort of the pinnacle at that time of, of what power pop really meant. And, and they were perfect because they were Midwestern. They were hard, you know, they, they played loud. They were, uh, you know, they had a big attitude. They had an image <laughs> that, you know, we were hoping to follow in their footsteps, I think. But really, when I look back on it, the writing that we were doing, the writing that and the writing that happened after the band, it, is not pure power pop. it's it's more uh, uh, we, we were trying to straddle some sort of rock divide between songwriting and aggression. There were a couple people in the band that were very, very committed to that idea, and uh, that was why the band got started. What What year did the but band start? We started in uh, late nineteen seventy nine. Okay, and the band got started. The band got started because of label interest. <laughs> oh, this okay. is a thing that that was not. Known to the label at the time, I don't think <laughs> 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 the uh, what had happened was is that, that there was a previous band called Westminster,
0: and Westminster
4: had Frank Weeble and Kirk Kaufman in it, and some other guys, and both Frank and and Kirk were uh, uh, founders of the Hawks. Um, I was never a member of Westminster, but I wrote songs for them and was a compatriot. But I moved to Los Angeles in 1975 to try to become a songwriter. And uh, in 1979, I was still in Los Angeles and got a call from Frank Wewell, and he said to me, Remember those tapes that we sent out this last summer? I got interest from Capitol and Columbia, and I had been back on vacation and done some recording with them each summer that I'd been gone. And he called and said that, uh, did I want to come back and put together a band for a showcase for the label? And I thought about that really hard for about a third of a second. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, turned to my wife and said, Frank says they've got a label deal. Do you want me to go back? And she says, sure. <laughs> and uh, so I did that. At that time, Frank and Kirk had been working with a, a guy named Dave Steen, who was originally from Des Moines but had just moved to Minneapolis to get into a band up there. And we, and Kirk and I actually went to Minneapolis and visited Steen, and we talked to him until he agreed to join. At that point, we had gotten a little bit of development money from Columbia. So we, uh, I don't know how to how to put this, we convinced Dave to, to join us, and the reason we won him was is that Dave was the Swiss Army Knight. He could play. Absolutely anything. I didn't even know him at the time. I'm surprised that he actually agreed to uh, to join us, except that he had done some work in the studio that the guys had. But he agreed to come down, again, the same reason I did, because of the label de- uh, deal. But the the ethic of the band was really started with Westminster, which was tuneful, Beatle-oriented, hard music <laughs> so we got together and put together a demo tape uh of new songs that we had but we knew of one song that we wanted to send to them and it was steam song right away <laughs> Away was the single and it ended up number 63 on Billboard and so on. And the arrangement and the whole thing Steen had in his head, he had that song ready to go. He had recorded it once with a band called Benson out of Ames, Iowa um, at the studio that we had. And uh, he ended up giving the song to the to us for the purpose of, of trying to get signed. And that worked really well. The, we sent them what turned out to be five songs that were on the first album uh, that were all new to the label from uh, the original tapes that we had sent out. As a matter of fact, of the original tapes that we sent out, There weren't any of those songs ended up on the first album. It was all the new stuff that we wrote when we got back together in a hurry. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, that was how the band got together. I had actually gone when I was in L.A. with a friend of mine to an audition that the Knack had put together for labels when they were trying to get signed.
1: Okay. Cool.
4: And they were auditioning a keyboard player, who now that was why I was there. And the keyboard player was a friend of this friend of mine. I went there and listened to him, and I thought this band is great. That keyboard player is terrible. Uh And and if my friend hadn't been there, I would have walked up to somebody in that band and said, "You need a different keyboard player," and it's me. But uh, but my friend was there, and I wasn't going to try to ace his friend out of the gig. Yeah, you know I would have gone up and said that, and they would have said go away. But you, you know you always think of little things like that. And you go, was I, you know, I wasn't heartless enough
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to
4: go up and try to get into the neck when I saw what they had before they uh, before they even got signed. But I knew because of what they were like, that we had a chance. Mm-hmm. And that was why it only took a third of a second to, to answer yes, really. Because I don't know that I would have moved back. I was I loved L.A. I still like it. Would have happily stayed there for the rest of my career. And even if I never uh, made it in the music industry, I would have uh, loved to live there. But we came back here because we had the recording studio here. Kirk and Frank, uh, Westminster, had built a, a 16-track recording studio here in, in 1972 that was actually designed by Tom Hidley, who did the Westlake Rooms in L.A., but it was done when he was an unknown and so we had a studio that was basically functionally like the main room of a record plant. It had, except it had MCI instead of SSL equipment. So we collected in Otho, Iowa, where the studio was on Kirk's farm. And that's how the band got together. That's how I got in the band.
1: Had Hawks even played shows before you made the first record? No. No, yeah, that's what it sounded like. (laughs) That's that's interesting.
4: We played a gig before... When I came back that first week, Kirk had set up a little gig in a barn (laughs) (laughs) for some of his friends. He wanted to see if there was any chance that there was a band there. He was thinking more practically than the rest of us. And... (laughs) we put together this gig and nobody knew any tunes. Nobody knew our original tunes, of course, cause nobody had been together. So we were playing old country tunes and old beetle tunes and, <laughs> and stuff. And it was just a riot. We didn't have a guitar player. <laughs> but, I mean, Kirk is a guitar player, but Kirk is really a recording engineer who plays guitar. You know, I'm a piano player who was trying to be in a band. He was a recording engineer who was trying to be in a band. And, you know, Kirk is a great songwriter. This guy is a four-time member of the Iowa Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He's he's a member as the Hawks. He's a member as a studio owner. He's a member as a... Uh, well, there's a third one I can't remember. and then and then he won the Lifetime Achievement Award a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. And it's because of his work as as the producer of all kinds of bands that came through the studio, which he ended up as the owner of because it was on his place. And Kirk has done more for Midwestern rock bands and you know, than anybody I know just working out of this little studio in Otho, Iowa, which is the same place where we got started clear back 45 years ago.
1: The records are really slick, you know, very slick production. Even the second record, which I forget the name of the producer, but it wasn't Tom Werman on this. Was it John Ryan, something like that? Um, yeah, it was a guy named John Ryan. Yeah. There's a lot of different styles, you know, there's a lot of, some of the songs sound more new wave some of them are kind of aor even hard rock you know the, and then there's the power mm-hmm. pop angle too so you've got it's probably a result of you have so many different songwriters right
4: well it's a result of songwriters different support songwriters and panic
2: <laughs> because
4: just like every band, you know, you collect your songs, you write them and you do them and you get your record deal and you go,
2: shit, this is great. We know what we're doing.
4: And they put out the record and the record doesn't do it. The first single got to number 63 on Billboard and died. Yeah. And, then, and then they put out It's Alright, It's Okay, which was my song, mm-hmm. and, and it sank like stone. All except on album-oriented rock at the time which it got up in the 30s somewhere but uh, I think 39 after we didn't have a, a, a big storeroom of other songs yeah uh, so when that when it didn't hit that was panicsville because they had put you know a, a great deal of effort into us. And uh, we didn't know what to write next. So everybody wrote stuff that they thought was going to be hits. People were saying to me, write another, it's all right, it's okay. on the great divide which is on the second album which is uses
1: the same chords oh yeah (laughs) i love that song i love that's my favorite song on that record is that right yeah
4: it's one of my favorite songs i ever wrote
1: but that's how it was written
4: Uh, at that time, my biggest problem was lyrics. I could write music all day. I, I, I was not really a lyricist and I had to come up with some sort of plan to write something to write about. And I was, so I thought I would write about spies, you know, standing on the great divide is not an original idea, uh, for a title, but the, uh, but I thought the song turned out pretty well. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, that was one of my favorites too. But then, Steen was writing stuff like the the opening track on the um tonight you are mine, and that was the one that we thought was the hit. That's not what they put up. That second record was not cut as a band in the way that the first one was. We did a demo tape. The one that I mentioned to you that Columbia got from us when we when they gave us the development deal. We recorded that stuff all together and, and sent it out. And then when we did the record with wormen of course, we recorded it uh, as much together as we could. A ton of overdubbing because that's the kind of music we were making. You know, the core of the performances were the basics that were cut as a band. The second record was cut over nine months by the band by itself and was rejected by the label. Nevertheless, most of that material, most of the better material that we did over that time, like Angel and Tonight You Were Mine, Great Divide, those songs were all came out of those sessions that we cut by ourselves. We had said, look, we want to re- produce ourselves. And at the time, we liked Worman, but Warman was going to be too expensive and probably d- wasn't going to want to do the second album. Uh, when they turned down the, r- the record that we sent them, they assigned us John Ryan. He came in and, and we told him, we said, look, we think this record is done. What do you want to do to it? What, what do they want us to do? he says, well, they don't hear a single, we'll find you a single. And he found that horrible song that's at the end of the album called Call On Me, mm-hmm. which, he, which they made us cut. But I I thought Frank was gonna actually refuse to actually sing the song. And you can hear that on the record. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he hated that song with a passion. And it is a really stupid song.
2: Sometimes life is hard for you If someone's apart from you Don't you worry babe, I'm on your side it's not a pity, girl, I'll come tonight Sometimes there's nowhere to go And no one to let your love grow Don't you worry, babe, I'm on your side It's not a pity, girl, I'll come tonight Call me when well. go
4: That was the only idea that he brought to that record. And the only other thing that they did was they make us, when we had absolutely no money, go to L.A. and cut the record. We finished up vocals, and they put the record out because they were contractually uh, required to. And this makes it sound like Columbia didn't support us, but the problem was is Greg Geller got promoted. Greg uh-huh. Geller was the guy that signed us. Uh, he
1: was your a and
4: guy? I, he was our A&R guy. Yeah. Greg Geller is one of the nicest people, one of the best people I ever met, and one of the most respected people in the history of the music industry. And I have nothing but great things to say about Greg Geller. But after the first album came out, he got moved from Columbia to Epic. And they have a rule at CBS that if you are on another label, you cannot even talk two bands that are on the other label. They, they put up a brick wall between us and him, and we could never talk to him again as long as we were signed to him. Now, I don't know if he wouldn't have taken our calls or not, but that was a scary thing. It was a, it, it was a thing. And then we got uh, a guy named Mickey Eisner. Mickey Eichner was very successful. He signed Michael Jackson. But that'll give you an idea of where his head was. Yeah. And he did you know he he just looked at us as as a project to get rid of and that's what he did.
1: Right. That's a pretty classic major label story. They reject the yeah. album, force you to put out put the single, what they call the single on there. You you lose your A&R guy. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a classic. Yeah. yeah.
4: It's exactly what happened. Yeah. The but the other thing was is that we we had a, a problem at the time, and I realized it. Probably it probably took me a few years to really figure it out for myself to understand why we didn't do better. We had the wrong goal. Mm-hmm. Our goal was to get a record deal. We didn't have a goal to make it in the industry and live in the industry. We didn't understand the industry. We understood songwriting. We were very skilled recording artists. I mean, we were as skilled as anybody um, on our own. You know, it would have been interesting if we would have had a direction from the label like Roy Thomas Baker got with the cars, which is just, just, okay, we don't hear it, but you hear it, fix it. You know, make it make it happen, and we'll do it. They didn't tell that to Warman. They told Warman, "Don't change a note. Just record it really, really better."
2: Mm-hmm.
4: And the reason they did that was because the songs were not in perfect time. The songs, uh, "It's All Right, It's Okay." The functional version of "It's All Right, It's Okay" that we cut. For the first record was identical to the version that came out and so were most of the other songs that, that had been that we did including Right Away re-recording those songs was a pain in the fucking ass <laughs> pardon my French it, w- it, it was it was it, yeah, that was maybe the, the hardest mental thing to do to give ourselves credit. I think we did a pretty good job on that first album, and Borman was responsible for that. He, w- he really executed what they told him to do exactly, perfectly, and it just didn't work. But we didn't understand that we were still at the start and that we could build on what we had failed at and we didn't last long enough as a band after that after the second album uh dave steen in particular he had a family he had two kids he wanted to he he knew that he needed a real job before everybody else (laughs) (laughs) and he, he took he took a job in the uh Uh, advertising publishing business and worked his way to the top of a company, which is now in Lincoln, Nebraska. And then he kept writing and, and, uh, and went back to his first love, which is kind of R&B and blues.
1: So did the, did the record label put you out on tour? Did you go out and open up for bands?
4: No, they wouldn't give us any, any, um, (laughs) money, but they, well, one of the things that they did was they tried to get us in touch. Well, let me back up. Once we got a record deal, we didn't even have management. Right. So we had to find management, and Geller was actually helpful. He contacted a guy named Shelley Finkel. Shelley Finkel was a uh, music promoter, and we really liked him. And he says, "Well, we're, we're gonna we're gonna get you going." We're gonna, first we're going to get you out uh, to play. And we were really nervous because we had managed to record a record that was almost impossible to play.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
4: the, I mean, there were enough parts on some of those songs that we would have had to have the Brian Wilson experience on stage to make it happen. So nobody was really all that excited to go out and play, except for Steen, who was a really good live musician. And they offered us, a, some agency, CAA or some agency, big agency, offered us a tour with Tom Petty.
1: Mm.
4: And we we turned it down. Oh, really? First of all, we didn't really know Tom Petty. Yeah. It, I, I was the only guy in the band that really knew Tom Petty, and I loved Tom Petty and thought Tom Petty was great, but Kirk, the studio guy, and and the other guys thought, no, we want to record. We want to record the next album. That's the most important thing, is to get that album out. It never occurred to us that we needed fans.
1: <laughs> yeah,
4: We were our own fans. You know, we thought, I don't know what it was, but it was a studio-centric band from the very, very beginning. And I believe, and I, I, I don't think I'm wrong about this, I believe that in our lives, as the Hawks, we played 14 gigs. And I only played nine of them.
1: Right. Interesting. <laughs> yeah.
4: And I can remember, I, I remember one of those gigs. We played, we, we got signed. we had our record out, we we went over to Storm Lake, Iowa, which is 70 miles from where we are located here, and to a, a ballroom over there, and we put on a we promoted a show ourselves that we sold out the ballroom for two shows that night, which is probably about a thousand people both shows, and uh, we made fourteen dollars. I made $14 that night. (laughs) 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 And we did all the work ourselves. I mean, we hired a couple of roadies. The roadies made more than we did. Mm -hmm. But uh, we just never, uh, you know, one of Kirk's ways to not go out and play was to build a PA. And he built a PA over the whole summer. <laughs> we should have been out playing. <laughs> I mean, we were incompetent as business people. We didn't have a a plan except to record and make hit songs that were going to make everybody go crazy. That's what we thought was gonna happen. wrote that song don't walk away that was specifically written to try to write a tuneful heart song that would be commercial in the environment that we were in and we had we figured out that we or we thought we had figured out that what we had done didn't work so we had to do something slightly different we didn't really think we could build on what we had done before, so we were casting about. That was one of the ways I cast about to write a song for the second record. The problem is is that Frank will can't sing like Steve Perry. He can sing strongly but he cannot but he doesn't have that bugle like voice that you gotta have to sing hard rock. But he never knew that. <laughs> He thought that he could sing Led Zeppelin. I don't know, you know, if if you brought this up to him, I think he'd laugh. Uh, because I don't think he sees it that way. But that was what was happening. We were trying to write hard material. We were really good at softer material. Uh, Kirk wrote really beautiful finger-picking type ballads that he could write. My best songs are... Uh, with the exception of a couple of them. The, the, the stuff that I wrote for the first album it, it is all rock. We were really, it's impossible to say how lost we were when the first record didn't hit. Nobody expected that. I know the, rep, the label didn't expect it, but uh, I, I communicated with uh, with Geller, oh, I don't know, a year or so, a couple years ago, and, and uh, asked him, you know, what they thought about about the Hawks now looking back on it, he says, "Well, you know you, you just never understand why one band makes it and why one band doesn't, why one record makes it, why one record doesn't, And I think he's right. Yeah, I don't think you can tell. This is something that uh, no one talked about at the time, but uh we were the beneficiaries of Paola, yeah in on, on our first single. Mm -hmm. the there was a guy oh shit i've forgotten the guy's name but he he was he did a real good job (laughs) let's just put it that way we were instructed to not try to contact him or say anything about him um that that we didn't know what he was going to do but he was definitely helping us and uh Uh, That may be why uh, the first record hit the charts. I don't know. I do know that the record was top 10 in a couple of isolated places, and they were not necessarily the places that he was working as far as I knew, because he was out of Philadelphia, the guy that that, that they were working with. And I think they were trying to break the record in the East. And, um, I do know that, that Kirk believes that the problem with the first record was that West Coast A- A&R did not agree with East Coast A&R about the record. And the uh, uh, problem was is that Men at Work came out at just about the same time as us. They were on the same label. Men at Work had a worldwide international number one smash. And they wanted to work. They they weren't interested in working our record. They were interested in working that record because they were breaking it. So the business part of the band was pretty much of a failure. The musical part of the band, to me, was very successful because people that, that know those records still like them. The Hawks was one of the best experiences that I ever had and one of the most frustrating at the same time, mm-hmm. just because, it, it because you know, your dreams get dashed and you, you get over that and you look at it and it's positive. It's like anything else in your life that you have memories of, you know, there's, there's always good, bad things about it, but ultimately it's, it's the good things that, that you really remember and that really matter.